Although I have started recording, um, we, we do edit this quite stringently. So this is kind of just to capture any kind of um, any usable banter, which, so- which I may wish to drop in. <laughs> drop in as an Easter egg at the end of the edit. I'm not sure if you've heard. Surely all your, all your banter is usable, Bob. Surely. Don't call me Shirley. Hey, <laughs> a little bit of naked gun. <laughs> Hello, my name is Bob Flanagan, programmer of Gauntlet and Marvel Madness, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as ever with Paul Drury. Hello. But sadly, no Tony Temple, who's still unable to join us for the time being. You'll recognise Paul's byline, of course, from Retro Gamer magazine. And Tony's the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic. Our guest for this episode is programmer Bob Flanagan, who spent a decade at Atari, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Bob honed his coding skills producing games for the Apple II, often based on the arcade titles he'd grown up with before joining Atari in 1984. As is now law, it was a difficult time for the company and the coin-op business as a whole, yet Bob still managed to work on some of their best-loved releases, including Paperboy, Marble Madness and Gauntlet. Bob tells us about collaborating with a brilliant but demanding Mark Cerny, having Ed Logg as a mentor, and then finally taking the lead with the innovative, swashbuckling Skull and Crossbones. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a few friends. You can follow us on Instagram at TDE Podcast, Twitter at The TDE Podcast, and everything else, including the option to listen via a browser window, is at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm interested to know that you, you joined Atari in 1984, which kind of implies you must have spent some of the previous years actually playing some of their big hits, you know, Asteroids, Missile Command, and, and then there you are working alongside some of the people that, that made these games. Bob, was there any element of hero worship? Uh, yes, there was. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time at the castle uh, near where I lived, which was Miniature Golf and Arcade, and I spent a lot of time in there. Um, and in fact, my career before Atari was making Apple II games, and I tried to copy the arcade games as much as possible, totally illegally, but um, <laughs> I never got in trouble for that. I guess the market was too small to, to worry about. But uh, in fact, I met um, Robin Ziegler, who was a pinball designer at Atari at a game convention up in San Francisco. And he actually got me really excited about working in the arcade business, which is why I interviewed there. So I was, yes, overwhelmed uh, being surrounded by the people at Atari that I had I had seen and played their products. Wow. 
Um, now, of course, it, it, whilst it was your first job in the coin-op business, it was not your first time making games. As you've alluded to, you made uh, Apple II games before that. Right. Do you think that's what got you the job at Atari, that you'd made home games? Um, I think that was a significant factor in the interview. I actually brought my Apple II and showed... Oh. Uh, little bits of the games that I had worked on to demonstrate my my technical abilities. Um, I, I'm dying to know, did they comment then, they're, they're very good, Bob, but you seem to have ripped off our arcade title. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't start asking you for royalties. That, that's pretty funny. That You know, I now that I look back at it, I, I, I think they could have done that. They, they didn't. Uh, truly amazing. Um, and they, they asked me some technical questions based on what they saw um, to see if I could adapt to to the arcade, but uh, no, they never mentioned the ripoff. Uh, and, and one of my favorite games was a a game called Sea Wolf, which was a oh. pretty pretty direct. Yes, you did. Yes, you did a direct copy of that for the Apple yeah. Two. Um, um, you mentioned a little bit about technical stuff there. I mean, could you directly use your coding experience from the Apple Two when you started to code games? For you know a coin up at Atari, or did it need a totally different skill set, or maybe even a different mindset? So that's actually a really good question. Um, the the Apple II uses a 6502 microprocessor, which it ends up is is and was the audio processor for most of the arcade games that I worked on. Hmm. Um, it was not the main processor. It ends up they were just in in the process of switching to the 68000 family for their for their games, for their CPU games. Um, so I did need to learn a new language because uh, they were using C on top of the 68000. And I needed to learn the new assembly and I needed to learn um, what they call embedded development where and using an emulator, which was completely different than, than working on the Apple II. Mm -hmm. Now, Bob, I have spoken to you before and you did mention that um, even though Atari had something of a reputation for partying, actually, <laughs> that you kind of joined Atari because you'd maybe been doing a little bit too much partying yourself and actually you were trying to get a bit of stability in your life are you the only person that's ever joined atari to stop partying <laughs> uh <laughs> i don't know uh actually my mentor <laughs> uh my mentor ed log um doesn't even uh drink alcohol and he you know as you know he did asteroids and yeah. was the designer and and lead on gauntlet um and he was my mentor for most of the time I was at Atari, along with several other of the, of the people yeah. there. But did it bring some stability to your life? Before that, you'd been a freelance programmer, a young, young chap, yeah. uh, presumably with a bit of disposable income. Yeah. Did Atari actually bring some stability then to your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, with the regular work hours um, and the, it ends up the people I were, was working with were, were not in the, in the, the crew that was the, the major partiers and Mark Cerny on Marble Madness was definitely not involved at all. Um, and the people that I worked with on Paperboy were not. So it was a pretty good, I, I what I needed, I got <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and, and maintained for years there. Yeah. Uh, Bob, let's talk about Paperboy. Um, can you give us your impression, Bob, of the of the atmosphere at Atari when you joined? Um, because the arcade industry was, of course, going through quite a turbulent time after all. Right. 
when I started on Paperboy, I worked with uh, John Solitz and Dave Ralston. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, John was really my first mentor there. And the, I think the transition was started before I got there um, internally in response to the industry transition. Yeah. In that they were trying to do some new things, Paperboy being a medium res uh, monitor and hardware, which was which was new to the industry. Um, and the controller, you know, they were working on really differentiating themselves from uh, just the standard game. Yeah. Was it a steep learning curve for you, Bob? You know, I, I look back and think it should have been, um, but I think there's, I think I have a, a, and this is not meant to be arrogant or egotistical. I, I feel like I have a natural affinity for learning uh, computer languages. Sure. And, and so it, I had to learn a language called Bliss for Paperboy and um, and an, another new processor because it was not the 68000 or the 6502. It was uh, based on a, a DEC uh, CPU. But uh, I don't I don't think I had uh, those kinds of difficulties. I think my difficulties were in the general working with custom hardware stuff, um, being in a place where on the Apple II, everything was stable and you knew how it would work. And if it didn't work, it was probably because of something you did. Right. And when I got to the arcade, it was like, this hardware is brand new and a prototype and it never been fully tested, you know, in all the ways that it could be. So I started to out pretty badly by accusing uh doug snyder the hardware engineer that of of his hardware not working and was okay. quickly <laughs> embarrassed and it was a good lesson for me sure, sure it was a really good lesson for me which i've obviously held on to until today so what what do, do, do you recall that what what happened there uh yeah that there was i think it had to do with color and color change and it wasn't working with the code that I was writing. I, you know, I said, Doug, I don't think the hardware is working. Can you check it? And, <laughs> you know, he, he said, oh, it looks like it's working right. What are you doing? And I explained to him what I was doing. And he said, well, that's not the way to do that. Right. So what I learned from that is to distrust myself a little more before I started distrusting the environment. Paperboy is, of course, famous for its unusual control system, yeah. mimicking the handlebars of a bicycle. So when you when you when you saw that, uh, did you think brilliant or what the hell is this? I actually thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really excited when I when I went up to the cabinet and and played with the prototype mechanics there. Um, I I thought it was really awesome. Um, after having played with Apple II paddles, you know, and joysticks. Yeah, sure. Although I I actually have to say I find I find the arcade. The original version, of course, of Paperboy, actually quite tricky to control when compared to, let's say, the Commodore 64 version, which I do actually play to this day. I do <laughs> I do find it easier with a joystick, but of course it is unique and, and, and was quite striking at the time. Yes, yeah. And, and the control, yeah, it didn't, it, I don't think it changed the gameplay a whole lot, as, as you say, playing it on a on a joystick system. Yeah. But it, it, it made the experience playing the game feel different. Of course, yeah, yeah. It, you definitely felt different as as the player yeah which was really cool which is what the arcade was all about um um paperboy was designed by dave ralston and john solowitz correct what were dave and john like to work with bob they were great um john was a great um mentor lead uh very patient um and then when i you know when i didn't really know what i was doing helped me out um dave is just really fun and creative his real strength was always creating the the background story 
behind mm. the whole mm. of the game and creating the the whole vision of why you're the paper boy and the, the cool you know blah 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 um on the papers and and yeah 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 all yeah. the layout and, and and the tuning uh they were both exceptional at tuning um i think from the player's perspective Bob, after Paperboy, you you teamed up with uh, Mark Cerny, but initially I understand that it was to do a game based on Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, how far did that get? Uh, we actually had a lot of design done. We were developing the the normal pre-game package, uh, which you presented it at a at a meeting in front of you know uh, management and and marketing to sell the idea so that you could get permission to pursue it. So we were we were preparing that package, um, doing some sample level design and uh, gameplay descriptions. What, um, what was it what was it going to be like? Was it a scrolling beat em up? What what was it going to be like? It, yeah, it was kind of a cry so it was it was based we were gonna base it, I think, on the Paperboy hardware. Okay. Because there were two games. They were actually considering creating a Paperboy system it was called system two i think it was called so yeah it was it was a thriller game i was in love with thriller um and so the thriller game was based on uh a hardware cross between paperboy and was it gremlins oh i think it, interesting that, that that paints a picture <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the, the idea you know was to use the same hardware because they were trying to create this new system and they needed more games um to be going out uh, to to really sell it as a system, yeah. Um, and so we 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 and and we thought the game deserved a higher resolution presentation, yeah, um, with more detail. So the the it was kind of a it wasn't a paperboy view, but it was it was meant to be isometric, um, top down angled a little bit. Okay. Um, was it set in a graveyard with zombies coming out the ground? That was part of yeah, I mean there were, the intention was to play in that video basically. Okay. Right in the town and be able to run around in the town and and go to the graveyard as part of it and and other things. Okay. I suppose the obvious question is that why did it not make it out then? Our our marketing person went to Michael Jackson's people and asked about a possible license and they we were told um that they shut it down uh based on them getting too much negative publicity about oh. thriller right then really because you mean the album that went on to be the biggest selling album of all time I, th I yeah i think it was the negative publicity of the the horror aspect of the video okay and they didn't want to <laughs> they didn't want to push that further and i agree with you i mean i i was i was in love with that that album and video and play it to this day whilst the thriller project stalled you stayed working with mark to produce marble madness which again was another very uh, original game but um in hindsight we know how successful it was but at the time you were making it i mean were you convinced that the idea of negotiating a marble for a maze was was actually going to be exciting for arcade players. Yeah, so Mark had been developing that idea before I got to Atari, I think, and was kind of in his in his back pocket uh, somewhat uh, when when Thriller didn't go. And I actually instantly loved the idea okay. of of the trackball controlling a rolling ball through a, a, a Escher like playfield, yeah. uh, which was 
his real key there. Mm-hmm. And creating the ray traced play fields was was another unique aspect to the game. I don't, I don't think the players ever knew that, but it, it was. Want to tell us what you tell us what you mean by ray tracing? So yeah, the the ray trace the play fields uh, were were created. They were rendered on on a computer um, using a ray tracing methodology, okay. which today is just getting to our GPUs. Um, so that you can do it in real time. Um, but our play fields took four hours or, I don't know, four hours or more to do, um, to render on our computers, on our big Vax computers. Wow. So we would have to wait overnight and making changes was a very slow, iteration was a very slow process. That's interesting to know. I, I also understand that you programmed that game in, in C. Correct. And I, and I wondered how using a higher level language like C, you don't have to get too techy with this. <laughs> I just wondered how that affected the development process did it did it help it a lot because it was a higher level language not assembler or something like that so i had done a lot of basic previously but not nec um and mostly my recent experience had been assembly language working in c was actually faster um for iteration Hmm. i was able to accomplish a lot of things very much quicker and um i think the part that it slowed down on is we had to eventually optimize sections of the code from c to assembly language because it it wasn't as efficient um i think it was the first game atari had done in c um did you have to learn c then quickly (laughs) yes (laughs) yes so what was that do they just come in and uh, morning bob and this week you're learning a new language language is that how it worked <laughs> uh basically i mean the the c and the sixty-eight thousand were in the pipe before i got well, there so you're obviously a quick learner and um, one thing i did want to ask about marble madness is that um we do understand that mark has uh, something of a well maybe a reputation for not being the easiest person to work with we we just wondered how you found the experience of collaborating with him. i think um i think mark is a friggin' genius um uh, i have so much respect for him i worked with him for 10 months straight i'll say um and it was pretty straight Uh, it was 24 7 (laughs) pretty close most of the time okay so um mark and i got along fine he is very demanding about what he wants he has a vision and he wants to see it happen and it ends up my whole career to that point was making a vision happen right um right copying the arcade games on the apple II was was making that vision that already existed happen um and and likewise even the work i did on paperboy was doing you know whatever thing they needed me to do um to support the project so um i was not he was difficult to work with because of that demanding nature, but it was rewarding at the end because of the result. Do you think? Do you think someone like Mark? I mean, do they need to be that demanding um, to get a good product in the end? Do you, Do you think it's worth the um, the pain? I suppose is what I'm getting at. You know, it, it, that's interesting because I I've thought a lot of times that I, I don't want to directly compare Mark and Steve Jobs because they're mm-hmm. not the same kind of people uh, at all. Yeah. But in terms of the visionary aspect and the expectations of delivery, I think they're similar. Bob, let's let's talk about another famous Atari name you you would work with next, and so, you know this is somebody you referred to earlier as your mentor, and that's Ed Log. Um, was Ed a very different kind of person to Mark? 
And if I can make this a two-part question, did he also recognize that natural affinity for computer languages that you alluded to earlier? Uh, yes. Um, very different kind of personality to work with. Yeah. Um, Ed also had very high expectations, but they were expressed differently. Right. You know, Mark oh, had a creativity uh, that was different than Ed's vision had. It was really focused on the gameplay, um, the moment to moment gameplay. And Mark's um, was different somehow to me. Uh, I'm not sure how to explain it. Um, he had the gameplay in mind, but he also had a whole bunch of other stuff like the graphics and the graphics quality and the animation. And mm -hmm. and Ed's was really focused on that that 30 seconds of, of player response. Right, okay. Um, and what the mechanics were that you learned. So they're they're very different in that way. Uh, and Ed also, well, they both let me do things on the project without a lot of guidance. I just, you know, do this and and how I did it was fine. So they did, so they did. So they did recognize your 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 talent yes. and and as you say that natural affinity. Yes. Um your your first project with Ed was to be probably your biggest success and that's that's Gauntlet. Correct. Um so, I mean, let's start by asking, were you a keen Dungeons & Dragons player? <laughs> no, and I still have never right. played Dungeons & Dragons. No, neither have I, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes two of us. Although I did spend a lot of time playing Apple II games in high school, so... The game, I mean, Gaunt Gauntlet's got a lot going on on screen. Hordes, hordes and hordes of enemies. Was it was it a challenge to get that many sprites moving in in a believable way? And that's where that's where Ed's kind of focus on the the low level details. Um, that was his main objective in the game was to have a mm. screen full of of more than what Robotron had, you know, going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and be able to play play the game that way. And he worked again with this gentleman, Doug Snyder who was a brilliant hardware engineer um, and Doug figured out a way to reuse some of the pieces of the hardware over and over on a vertical basis such that we could get, you know, instead of, you know, 50 things on the screen total, 50 things on the screen per 32 or 16 rows. Right. Um, and that made it possible to Ed, for Ed to do the vision and it wasn't particularly expensive. We all remember the the extensive library of speech in Gauntlet, mm. and all, all of which was, of course, generated by just one of the many iterations of Texas Instruments' ever-evolving line of speech synthesizer chips. Um, in this case, the I believe the um, and I had to refer to Wikipedia here, the TMS five two twenty C, which also featured in Temple of Doom and Road Blasters, to name a few. Um, right. The unique timbre of which many of us of a certain vintage will remember from Texas Instruments Speak and Spell, um, which is a little Easter egg I like to drop into every single podcast. Um, was it was it was it your code, Bob, that that triggered those speech elements at just the right time to encourage or antagonize a player? Were you responsible for that, for that timing? Yes. Yes. Uh, Ed Ed gave me the the job of implementing the the speech response and um, and all the first time message system right uh, that it, that it was integrated into um, as well as the kind of uh, snarky gameplay comments uh, along the way. Sure, I do. I do love all that speech. Prior to prior to speaking with you this evening, I was listening to a YouTube compilation of all the samples, such as "That was a heroic effort," and "I've never seen such bravery," <laughs> and 
my personal favorite use magic to kill death yeah. no it's quite it was quite quite fun to listen warriors to warriors eating eating all the food lately yeah exactly yeah 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 <laughs> or who who shot the food yeah we had it we had a great audio department too at that time that i think the two guys really focused on that were earl vickers and and brad fuller right um who I think Earl actually did most of the recording, the voice recording and stuff. And uh, he, they were just really creative with coming up with all the, the lines and the phrases and, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Tell 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 us about the process. Tell it tell us how that how that worked. Um, how the hardware worked and how you guys you, you got that speech down. I don't remember the technical term for the encoding technique that was used uh, that the TI chip played back. Okay, um, as a two letter three letter acronym of some kind. But Earl Earl was was responsible for managing the recording process. I think he did some of the voice or all of the voice. Or, or Brad also did some of the voice to get the different voices. Um, and then they would process that and and then eventually compress it. 80 PCM, that's what it was. Okay, yeah. Uh, 80 PCM. Um, so they would compress it and then we would have a library of, of usually multiple versions of each phrase mm. and then multiple phrases and then things I could pair together to string together mm. uh, to make warrior eats all the food as opposed to Valkyrie eats all the food. And then I, I would just trigger those samples in sequence at the right time. So I had, a, I created all the logic to track player status and what they were doing and, you know, who was the person that had eaten the last piece of food and, and count, <laughs> did, count all that. Did stuff. it, did it, did it not slightly annoy you that despite all that effort, it still sounded like speaking spell. Um, <laughs> or was it just at the time it was it was such a revelation that you could actually get things speaking. Yeah, I I was actually very excited by the voice. I thought it was. Sure. Uh, I wasn't. I it wasn't to me as big a step as the Marble Madness music was. Okay. Um, okay. But it, it was still. I mean, I came from the Apple II. Yeah. And and berserk voice um and so it it was impressive to me that we could get that much variance in the in what i heard as the the vocal timber or whatever um, yeah sure and and the variety the quantity we could get in was was impressive to me yeah no it's, it's, it's seriously impressive what's also impressive is you know in addition to the huge number of sprites on screen at any one time the huge number of levels um you know did you have what kind of input did you have in designing those levels? Uh, so I was very lucky. I got to take over the maze editor or the level editor from Dave Toyer. Oh, Dave was on Gauntlet, was he? Okay, fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if he, he should have gotten credits for that. I don't know if he did. Um, right. But he he built the level editor. I took it over and added to it and extended it. But it ran on the game hardware. Yeah. Um, and we we actually had it set up so that people around the building could come in and build mazes on their time off, and then ah. Ed could oh. take a look at them, and and we could, we could look at them and see if they would work for gameplay. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and so that's how we got so many created. We got everybody coming in all the time creating levels. So 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 that famous Atari spirit of collaboration. Everybody kind of uh, chipping in on everybody else's games and you know with, with the greater good in mind right and usually you got to go around and play the games and contribute and make suggestions to the game idea but mm. i think this was the first time you could actually everyone in the building was able to come in and and create content 
uh, for the game. That must have been quite a thing. It was it was a blast. We were crowded. We had to set up a, a second a second system somewhere so that I could actually really? do my work and, <laughs> and <laughs> brilliant and not be interrupted all the time. So people were just wandering in and 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 going, dude, can I can I just can I can I. Can I have a, can I have a go? Can I make a level? Yeah, I think we actually even set set up hours uh, on the on the machine so Fantastic. that there was a, a more stable kind of environment for us. Bob, you, you also worked on the sequel to Gauntlet, and then was there a plan to actually make a third? installment i think ed was tired of gauntlet by then (laughs) Uh, i think when he wanted to take it a new direction um zybots was intended to be a gauntlet 3d kind of thing ah i see so you've had huge success with gauntlet and the sequel bob how did you feel about going in a kind of sci-fi direction as opposed to the kind of fantasy theme that gauntlet had been um i i don't think it mattered that much to me um okay. I, I i was happy to be working on a game with ed <laughs> right <laughs> I, I think i at the time i was probably a little disappointed that we didn't get to proceed with the characters from gauntlet marketing felt very strongly that that we needed to go a different way with the theme and so you know ed, ed redirected the i think ed and the artists uh, redirected the theme into the sci-fi kind of thing and we were I think we were able to do some fun things with it yeah that's it, it a little more it was a little more like marble in terms of being abstract that's interesting and um, you um of course Zybots is is 3d and it's going from a first person perspective um and of course that is something that you'd um, done in some of your previous Apple II games I think Spectre and Space Art both yeah. kind of went for that perspective so um was 3D something you were sort of itching to try in a coin-op title, Bob? Yes. So Marble, I think, was my first chance at 3D, even though it was uh, isometric and, mm-hmm. and you didn't get that. But every all the math was 3D. And um, so I really got excited about 3D on Marble Madness and actually started going to the 3D graphics convention called SIGGRAPH oh, right. um, and started learning about real high-end 3D graphics. So when Ed wanted to do this thing, I was pretty excited about being able to try to try to do some 3D stuff. It ends up that the Zybots was all a 3D cheat, but uh, <laughs> it, it was it was still fun to work on the visuals that way. Tell us tell us how it's cheating. <laughs> so um, it it used something. Uh, the maze was uh, really uh, perspective drawn in such a way that as you could see the scrolling was chunky it was not smooth like quake um or or the other first person shooters yeah wolfenstein i think zybots is just it's about it's late 80s isn't it so it's just before that anyway right i see and so we we didn't have a bitmap i mean the hardwares of that time um you know like the apple ii was a bitmap hardware so i could put pixels wherever i wanted the hardwares for arcade were stamp based which meant eight by eight areas that we could change at a time uh, that had to be grid aligned so ed came up with this way to do the maze um and do turns um and draw it effectively in in a minimum number of stamps the the eight by eight areas um yes, yes. and so that was that was pretty fun 
I got to play with the, I think, the sizing of the characters as they grew and stuff, but that was... As, as a programmer, did it involve a lot of complicated maths? I mean, was this the biggest challenge you'd had so far at Atari in terms of kind of your raw coding ability? It, you know, it, it might look like that. Marvel was actually much harder <laughs> oh. in terms of the maths involved there, um, like rotating the dots inside of the ball. Yeah. Um, I actually had to get Cerny's help to finish that part at the time but the and the and the physics involved in marble madness were much more interesting um zybots was was it looks more complex it was actually simpler in some way in most ways yeah i mean zybots is a really interesting game there's a lot going on there but it can be a bit confusing um because there's a kind of 2d map and then you're in 3d and then people can shoot you from behind it's a bob do you think it was a bit too confusing for the typical arcade goer of the day uh, yes. And I, I think Ed thought that as well. Um, but, um, you know, we, we we got it done and it played well enough in the arcade, was successful enough during the first tests mm-hmm. that we feel like uh, it, it had pulled it off. Um, but yes, I, I, any 3D game, um, first person type game has, has had difficulty in the arcade. Mm-hmm. And later in my career, Space Lords had a lot of issues like that. But um, Zybots was, that's why the map was up there. Um, and, and a lot of people played off the map, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they ignored the th- they ignored the 3D that you spent all this time faking. Except for, you know, when you, you know, to, yeah, to get around the mazes, you know, you would use the map and then, <laughs> and then you would use the first person view to do any shooting or acquiring that you had to do. We're always uh, interested in games that didn't come out. So, um, Bob, we hear that you were with Ed working on a kind of update of Warlords, a game that um, I know me and I think Richie as well have got Mm. very fond memories of, a great multiplayer game. Um, How far did you get with that update? So we actually built a prototype and put it out in the engineering area. So it it was a pretty quick I mean, I think we spent a month on it. Okay. I have to, I'd like to say a month at getting a prototype up on a hardware um, on it with a you know tabletop type cabinet with four players and uh, and just got in, people in the engineering again you know that team uh, testing kind of thing yeah. and there just wasn't enough. A positive like addiction feeling okay. uh, to proceed with it from Ed's point of view. Okay. How how different was it from the original that we all know and 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 love? How, what was different about your update? Um, you know, I don't know that I had played the original that much. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, at the time, I didn't even. I just knew we were doing an update. So, I mean, what I remember about the game was we we had the whirly gigs on there for for the controllers. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and it was basically a four player, from my perspective, a four player breakout kind of yeah. you know so game. It, and it does sound like the original, but did it have did it have what fancy graphics or was there some weird features that were new? You know, that's that's what we missed. I think. I think if we <laughs> if we had if we had actually done even one or two unique power-ups as they say um to extend the game like i think iraq arachnoid oh yes yeah arachnoid yeah yeah yeah. arachnoid had had come out near that time and i think if we had had kind of like uh thought about some of the things that it did um and adapting those for what we were doing it, it even one or two in that prototype i think would have gotten a lot more exciting yeah. can i just say warlords meets arkanoid that is a winner yeah. i want to play that part. yeah 
I think they have that now. I think. Um, oh, right. <laughs> I think somebody just did that, right? In the arcade. Well, well, I know they've done an update of Arkanoid versus Space Invaders, so maybe it's that. Anyway, there's a lot of mashups going on. So, Bob, um, at the end of a decade, after after collaborating with many famous Atari names, you you finally get to lead your own project. So tell us, Bob, about your plans for Skull and Crossbones. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, I had quite a vision. I wanted to do something incredible. And it was really based on um, Errol Flynn's swashbuckling action adventure. Yep. Um, And uh, I got to work with this really talented animator, uh, Bridget Erdman, who um, saw the vision and wanted to create the animation to match. Um, I came up with a pretty cheap way to do collision um, so that it felt like swords were hitting swords and swords would hit parts of bodies, even though we were dealing with sprites and yeah, yeah. Uh, simple graphics. and Some big old sprites in, in Skull and Crossbones. Yes, yeah. And and the parrots as the as the sidekick character. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, I I had grandiose visions of doing something better than Double Dragon. Um, well, that's not. I mean, and, I don't so don't sell yourself short, Bob. That's not hard. <laughs> but Double Dragon was really successful. He was. And and um, and Skull and Crossbones wasn't. <laughs> no. Okay. Fine. I, I mean, in terms of creativity, I love what I did. In terms of market success, it, it was a flop, and it was because I. I was trying to do something that it, actually a lot of us designers do and that's why i'm not a designer anymore but we we put in the game what we think we would like um and so you know that skull and crossbones the ai was supposed to be this really cool ai uh, based on an article i read in scientific american huh. uh, called matchbox intelligence or something like that go on Go on. So the idea was you basically try something and then based on success or failure, you score it. And then the next try uses that previous information as part of a random thing. And it eventually learns to do the appropriate thing. Right. Okay. So it was really great because it would adapt to the player. The sword fighting would adapt to the player that it was playing in terms of defensive and off- offensive moves. It wasn't preordained. And that made it really responsive and fun, but players don't want to work that hard at the time. Uh, They wanted to do much more button mashing with button combos, uh, like Street Fighter. Um, Sure, yeah. They didn't want to, you know, it ends up there was a lot more depth in Street Fighter than I I thought at the time in terms of uh, player seeing something and being able to respond to it. Uh, But that, that was my intention with Skull and Crossbones, was to have the player learn how to uh successfully attack this this uh ai yeah sure i mean okay so despite despite the fact that it didn't do do so well out in the field i mean did did the game itself turn out the way you'd planned though bob other other than the the ai yeah yeah i had to dumb down the ai a lot and i ended up having to really tighten it for each particular character um and not letting it be as open but yeah i mean the parrots and the the story was okay. I wish I had Dave Ralston doing the story for me. Um, okay. <laughs> the story was kind of weak. Uh, typical, you know, princess needs to be rescued kind of a thing. But um, and and I had Mike Halley working with me on that project. Ah, Mike, Mike. Yeah, we've spoken to Mike um, in an earlier episode. He did. Yeah, he did talk about Skull and Crossbones a little. Yeah, yeah. He, he's. He. I, I believe. I think he spoke quite highly of it. 
uh, if I if I recall. I I think he made the game as as successful as it was um, because of the the tuning. I think he's an exceptional level designer and tuner. Yeah. Um, and I think he did that really well. The the characters again, Bridget Erdman and and I think I don't remember. I that's really bad of me. I don't remember the other artists on it. Um, did a really great job with the uh, visuals for the various characters. Yeah, sure. I mean. Uh... Bob, how how did it feel to be the lead? Uh, were you did you did you sit comfortably in that role? I uh, um, enjoyed it. the 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 projects that we were on at that time were never more than a couple of engineers. So, um, yeah, you, you know, leading one other person or, or or having a partner in design was kind of normal. Okay, um, and a different a different kettle of fish, obviously, to video game design these days. Presumably, it, yes. I liked being responsible for the decisions. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, the, the two times that I was really fully responsible for all the decisions in the arcade market, I feel like I made bonehead mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and again, that's why I'm not a designer anymore. I, I know where my strengths are. Okay, so Skull and Crossbones wasn't a big success. How, how did that feel, given given it was your first game as a lead? Did it Was, was that a little crushing, or did you... Did you learn to live with that? That there were enough pieces of that game that were successful in my own mind sure. that I was able to not get too depressed from that. I, I yeah, I sure. do think that's the game. I do believe we did a focus test on that game, mm. and I made a change in between two groups, and the game broke. Oh for the second group and wasn't ready right. when they came in. And I, I think I actually left our side of the focus group room crying. Oh, um, mate. It was, it was an <laughs> awful <Man>. pressured <laughs> experience. I felt so stupid. Like, you don't oh, make man. a change oh, in the God. middle of a test environment. <laughs> sure. Oh my word. Okay. Uh, but something to learn from, you know. I I I bucked up and I went back in and I I fixed the change and we got back into it. But you know that I just felt so many people depending on me and felt so much pressure. If you know, yeah. real men cry. Bob. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that's very honest of you um, to mention that. I you know it's. Um... Very touching. <laughs> the, the, you know, learning experiences can be uh, painful at times. Um, Bob, earlier uh, we talked about Marble Madness, one of your best known games. We understand that there was an unreleased um, sequel, Marble Man. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What What was the plan for it? Uh, the plan was to fix the problems that we had with Marble uh, Madness, uh, the things that Mark was unhappy with okay. about Marble Madness, which were, you know, the limited number of levels that we had time to develop. Um, and I felt like the technology was updated enough in our environments that we could get many more play fields into it um, and we could extend the gameplay quite a bit. And it, it did end up with 16, I think 16 levels. Right. Uh, so, uh, and we had it out on test and it, it tested in the top, I think it was in the top four, wow. top five, but it, it had the, the an edict had come down that it had to be in the top three. Otherwise it wasn't going to get produced. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> if it's not on the podium, it's not going out. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, a month later, uh, they put out a game that wasn't in the top three um, afterwards. So I was I was very upset by that whole situation. Was, was the game completely finished? I believe it, it was, if not almost finished, was finished. It, it was pretty, it was pretty done. Yeah. Um, I think it was, you know, there was some tuning left to be done. It, it was expected to go to market um, at that time. Uh, I was very, very upset. But I also understood why um, in a, in, and the, the fact that, that the game was being played on joysticks instead of trackballs was oh was a, you mean was that not the was that not the original plan then well we started with trackballs and partway through i actually did all the coding for the trackballs um and and then on our first test it didn't do as well as we expected okay and my response to that was the market conditions have changed in you know 10 years mm-hmm. everybody's used yeah. to home computer games they've played marble madness on their on their console on their computer and everybody's used mm-hmm. keywords or a button and a joystick um yeah and i thought oh okay well let's adapt to that market well that's 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 interesting actually that kind of loops back around to my um earlier comments regarding the home adaptations of paperboy and i i, I do believe that was my first experience of paperboy and like i say when i actually did get to play it in the arcade i was just like what the hell but it's it's quite interesting that you you went with the joystick for marble man yes and that that was that was a big mistake apparently right um uh, i i i think the problem in the first test was not the joystick you know looking back um it was probably lack of tuning or content um Mm. and 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 the character i think i i i went much to you know marble madness was very abstract and i tried to really create a character that could be uh, commercialized and used to sell the product um, and further it in other markets. And that was, that was a, probably a bad track as well. Um, but the game itself, I feel very confident in and the bonus levels that I don't know if either of you have been able to see it. Well, but... we've played, we've, it's in a cabinet now, isn't it? Paul, did we did we play Marble Man at free play? That was going to be my question, Bob. Is that sorry, we, Paul. it has no, no. Is that um, Richie and I and, and Tony? We we played Marble Man in a dedicated cabinet, correct? Um, which was lovely. So it sounds like you haven't played. Have you? The creator has not played this version then. Yeah, no, I've played. Ah, it. Good uh, I have. I have one. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Terribly sorry. <laughs> no, Bob, you have your own. That's I do. <laughs> and in fact, the the others that are out there came because I loaned someone the the ROMs and the PALs <sighs> so they could copy them because they had boards but no hardware. So it sounds like you're very. That was my question. You sound like you're very involved with the the retro scene and that you know you've you've helped get a game out there that that had been unreleased before. So are you quite involved? Do you go to shows and conventions and things like that? I go to the California Extreme. Dream, uh-huh. which is a convention put on here in, in California, yeah. in San Jose. Uh, I've been a couple of times. Um, but I, I talk to a lot of the people in that community often. Yeah. Um, they all want me to release the ROMs to the community. and <laughs> Of um, course they do. <laughs> uh, uh, there's, there's a gentleman named Scott Evans who um, is the one that I loaned the parts to originally. And he's done a lot of things for me uh, to help me. And he's actually put a lot of effort into collecting Atari 
paraphernalia and memorabilia and hardware. Um, and so I felt like I owed him some uh, time. Um, so I, I told him that that I wanted to release them to the community. And um, I also don't have the legal right to do so. Um, yeah, shh. Don't worry, we won't tell you. It's fine. <laughs> so, Your secret's safe with us. So, but I, I do talk to the the people in the community a lot, and I really appreciate what they're what they're doing and what they go through to do it. Yeah, and and and, and it is and it is fabulous that you know. Uh, stuff that you probably assume to be lost to time is now now appreciated um by the next generation if you like or or, or kind of like you know uh, the, the old generation, generation yeah. still <laughs> well i don't know you know you do you do um you do hear of younger people getting into older games uh there is there is some um appreciation Ooh. yeah yeah and and the i mean the the main community obviously is yeah there um but yeah it's amazing to me what they've done with the emulators and and getting all the old games up and even you know the apple II emulators that can play all my old apple II games amaze me and the and there's a website yeah. that does that um that does it through a browser which is really amazing yeah and and and, and a good game is a good game end of story really regardless we don't we don't we don't talk about retro records or retro albums do we we talk about music <laughs> you know re- regardless of when it was made and uh, a good game is a good game oh that's true yeah yeah, my kids will listen to ACDC, which amazes me. Bob, one of the last things you worked on at Atari in the early 90s was developing hardware designed to display 3D polygons. I just wondered, uh, you know, did you sense that the polygons were going to be the future of gaming? So, yes, um, the, the key to that project was actually um, getting texture maps on the polygons um, ah. because the group that had done hard driving and race driving um, had a polygon hardware that was quite good and, and well-developed, um, but they weren't feeling the need to worry about lighting and texturing on mm. the polygons. Right. And I, after 10 years, um, you know, like I said, after Marvel Madness, I started getting involved in this high-end graphics. I felt like it was really time for us to get there because the home market had it. Um, and, True. you know, it was, it was, we were getting behind. Um, so I, I found an engineer that, a hardware engineer that knew enough about the stuff that had ideas about how to do it in hardware. And I said, okay, well, I'll back you and we'll, we'll try to, to get this through. And we, we got a prototype up and running. And I think there was even a game under development after I left. Um, but the idea was to get perspective correct texture mapping and shading on the polygons. It it sounds like you were just on the the cusp of something and yet you've just alluded to there that you then left Atari. So, so Bob, why, why did you leave? I left because I didn't feel the marketing department at that time after, after 10 years there in, in 94 or whatever uh, was, was strong enough. And there, and there wasn't enough interest in where I felt the market had to go from the game development, um, standpoint. Um, and, and stronger, there was an opportunity at electronic arts to do coin operated games with some of, Ah. some of my old, (laughs) old cronies, uh, Dave Ralston and Will Noble and John Solwitz were at electronic arts and, on the verge of getting a coin op department going there. So, oh. um, I so was, you went to join, you went to join EA then? Yes. Yeah. And I was very excited to do that. And, uh, Ed Log actually joined us 
there as well uh, before after about a year and a half they shut that group down i was going to say so it was like putting the old atari gang together but again that that didn't come to anything did it bob no um it it was they put their first project out was a game named um, madden football which obviously is very successful in the home market but didn't do very well in the arcade Um, Uh, and so they decided based on that to kill it we were actually a month away from testing our first game um it was called hover tracks and it was a cross between hockey basketball um and skateboarding okay Um, (laughs) did you throw everything in that was cool at the time it was really was michael jackson in that as well (laughs) it was just really creative i was at dave ralston john solwitz design and it was based on flying down these incredible half pipe tracks um with a, a programmed camera and streaming the video so that it was very high resolution high quality graphics for the background and then the player characters were rendered on top of that and using data from the streamed movie to place the characters correctly and collide and um wow. it was really visually quite outstanding could it be could it have been a hit do you think bob um i think we all expected it to be um yeah it was a multiplayer so we had, you know, the coin drop was going to be there and it was a new creative concept. I think, I think it would have been very successful. I think we all did. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You did spend 10 years at Atari. I just wondered um, if you had to sum up your decade in the coin op business at Atari in three words, what would they be? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my, my three words now are edit out pause uh, yeah no, i was gonna say you're, you're gonna have to cut this dead space here um good lord uh the first word i thought of when i heard your question was amazing i feel uh educational amazing and i fortunate there you go i feel very fortunate to have been participating in that time even though i always begrudge the fact that i joined right as the market was declining well we've been very fortunate to have you on the podcast thank you for sharing those amazing stories bob we really appreciate it you're very welcome thank you for having me yeah bob thanks for your time man that's um that's great stuff before we do let you go you did mention that you had your own marble man cabinet what else do you have are you a collector <laughs> i'm too much of a collector my wife would like to get rid of my <laughs> go games. on go on uh, yeah uh, I, yeah go on i think i have eight arcade games or so that's that's small fry by some people yeah I, I i only have my own games that i worked on and i have a uh, berserk which my dad dad bought for me for $110 from a local arcade when it was shutting down. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Back when back when you could pick up these games for that amount of money. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was pretty amazing that they were getting rid of that game for $110. Uh, you couldn't I don't know that you could buy one now for that. Yeah, I'm part I'm part of a collector's WhatsApp group and every now and then one of the guys will share a like a marketing brochure for for the prices of games, you know, a few years after they've been popular, you could pick up like a like an Asteroids for like like $150 or something crazy like that. It's it's insane when you think about it yeah, now. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Bob, that has been lovely. We really really appreciate that, Bob. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. 
Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank you.